Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Five. Maybe not three cheers for Boris Johnson, but maybe one and a half or two cheers for... We are going to see lots of squealing from the unions and from the there's no harm in being cautious classes. Clearly isn't government policy to encourage all these people to come across the channel. Otherwise, this easy solution would be to send a ferry. A bit of Russian address to Vladimir Putin now about how you're feeling about him. <laughs> I'm not telling you what that means. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. She's back after a week <laughs> in the sick bay. Alison, you were missed by me and our listeners, of course, but didn't our distinguished colleague, Telegraph defence editor Con Cochlan, do a superb job of pretending to be you? I have to admit, um, co-pilot, you know I get a bit jealous about people who come aboard the rocket when I'm away, but I think if it was given a choice for the Planet Normal listeners to have a briefing on the Ukraine situation, a choice between Con Coughlin and Alison Pearson, I, I think you made the right call. He just edged it. <laughs> <laughs> but I know you're back fighting fit and it's great to have you back aboard the rocket with us because it's just not the same without you. Well, COVID laws and free mass testing are being swept away across England. Earlier this week, Boris Johnson announced plans to end COVID restrictions and scrap free COVID testing for the general public from the 1st of April, saying it was time for people to get our confidence back. Let's hope it's no April fool. People who test positive for COVID will no longer have to isolate by law from today, that is Thursday. And from April, if infected with COVID, we won't be advised to stay at home. Now, co-pilot Pearson, you once dubbed Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty and Chief Scientific Advisor Patrick Valance as oddly reassuring and reassuringly odd <laughs> a view you later, how shall we put it, updated. And on cue, as the Prime Minister tried to move the country on from this pandemic, our two top medical boffins did strike a more cautious note, urging the public to keep taking precautions such as self-isolating and to keep wearing masks. Now, the news agenda is dominated by this escalation in tensions, of course, and indeed military action, that east-west Russia-Ukraine standoff. And over recent days, global energy markets have been in turmoil, tightening the UK's cost of living squeeze. So as they impose sanctions, Western leaders will need to keep an eye on oil and gas price spikes. But Alison, Planet Normal's been questioning the merits of lockdown during much of this pandemic, including when many others wouldn't. So what are your thoughts as the end of COVID restrictions finally comes into view. Finally. Well, before I launch into my Henry V speech, <laughs> we happy few, Halligan, I just want to say my only disappointment with the excellent Conkotlin and Ukraine episode last week was we know that co-pilot Halligan had his misspent youth in Moscow. So could we just for the listeners have um, <laughs> a bit of Russian addressed to Vladimir Putin now about how you're feeling about him? Just give us a few words. Это невозможно, я забил все. I'm not telling you what that means. You're doing a great means, job, It means Vlad. that's impossible. I've forgotten everything. <laughs> <laughs> I should say to listeners that Copilot Halligan occasionally tries to teach me some Russian words for terms so unsavoury I don't even know them in English. <laughs> but a huge day today, Liam. 24th February, a month early all remaining COVID restrictions are lifted because we are starting with the living with COVID plan. Predictably, of course, Liam, there's been a wailing among the lockdown is lovely classes. But as the Prime Minister said, we have been spending, nay, squandering 
2 billion quid a month on these wretched tests, which as far as I can tell are placebos for the worried well. We know, Liam, that hundreds of thousands of healthy children sent home from school again and again, wrecking their education, doctors, teachers, train drivers, isolating, all causing chaos to our economy. And that madness is about to be over. So I say three huge cheers for that. And let's also not forget, I mean, obviously, we've been deep in this from Planet Normal for so many months and have criticised the government and often rightly so. But let's remember, co-pilot, today that there are many other countries which are lagging behind us where the opposite of freedom is going on. France, it still requires a vaccine certification from Monsieur Macron to basically faire le pipi. <laughs> and cute, caring Canada has declared a state of emergency, freezing the bank accounts of truck drivers who dare to oppose mandatory jabs. So our country, the UK, despite everything, has been able to restore people's freedom faster than any comparable economy. And I do think when Boris said that should be a source of national pride, I agree with that. I think with a bit of an ironic nod, I think we do have Partygate co-pilot to thank for the restrictions being lifted. Because he, if he hadn't have been in such trouble with Partygate, then he may have kept the restrictions on longer. He felt under political pressure to do something to assuage yeah. his own backbenchers, right? Absolutely. But I think that where we are now, in a way, it's terrific. I do think, unfortunately, let's sound a cautionary note, there are an awful lot of quite powerful people who don't want COVID to be over. The restrictions have suited them very nicely. Thank you very much. Hospitals, care homes, universities, schools, public transport, the entire Labour front bench, local public health wallers, all the health and safety barons who just love controlling what people can and cannot do. So we, people like us and Planet Normal listeners, we are up against this immense institutional inertia. So although it's bye-bye Coronavirus Act and good riddance, the government and those who want to get back to normal still facing millions of people have been scared out of their wits who will go on wearing masks. And what do you think, Liam? I mean, I think that we are going to see lots of squealing from the unions and from the there's no harm in being cautious classes. Yeah, the idea that wearing masks is costless, a term often used yeah. in the public debate, is just for the birds. You know, it's not costless if you're a kid trying to learn how to speak. <laughs> yeah. It's not costless if you're running a hospitality business. I agree with you, Alison. It is a moment to be grateful for what we have. I do think, as in your memorable phrase, it's not that the Prime Minister held his nerve by not cancelling last Christmas and by lifting COVID restrictions. He had his nerve held for him (laughs) by many of those backbenchers, not just Conservative backbenchers, but mostly Conservative backbenchers. The world, certainly the Western world, including the UK, the policy-making, political and media establishment did go slightly mad during this pandemic. I think that's what history will show. It will be very interesting what happens in the public inquiry. If we didn't have Partygate, Cakegate, the small matter of the biggest tensions between East and West since the Cold War, I do think we'd be talking more about the public inquiry. I do think that there would be more focus on this. Have we reached a point yet, Alison, in our national debate where if there is another serious pandemic of COVID or another respiratory disease, would we immediately go back to lockdown or would we learn the lessons of science indeed and of human nature and use an approach like the one advocated by the Great Barrington Declaration by the likes of Professor Shinepta Gupta, Jay Bhattacharya and the rest of them, more defined isolation, uh, targeted shielding of older people and those who are otherwise clinically vulnerable, while the rest of us get on with our lives, keep life going, keep the economy going to support the COVID restrictions that we may need. I'm not sure that we're yet at that point. I do think there'll be another knee-jerk panic response. And that's why this public inquiry is so important, where we try and learn the lessons and there'll be lots and lots of arguments and discussions about how you measure COVID, of COVID, with COVID, 
what people really died of were the swedes right we certainly know the kiwis aren't right it's absolutely incredible if you look at what's happening in new zealand at the moment and i must say chapeau to my gb news colleague dan wooden who he's been writing stuff in the papers recently about his pain Mm. uh, that he can't go home to his country of which he is a citizen Mm. um, to see his parents and he's no shrinking violet and i do think there's a big shift in opinion going on in new zealand to their ultra zealous zero covid policy we've seen that policy pretty much abandoned in australia and i know later on on Planet Normal, we'll have a slightly mm, Antipodean yeah. offering for our listeners. So, yes, maybe not three cheers for Boris Johnson, but maybe one and a half or two cheers. But for me, those cheers will always be relative to how other countries have responded to this pandemic. And I think right across the board, with one or two exceptions, but pretty much right across the board, I think we have massively overreacted of course covid is a serious disease of course people have died from covid but we knew pretty much from the outset one or two months in by the middle of 2020 when we started planet normal in earnest we knew it was a disease that massively focused on certain parts of the population the elderly and the clinically vulnerable unfortunate as that is it was also fortunate it gave us an opportunity to let the rest of us carry on living our lives and keeping economy and broader society going. We didn't take that opportunity. I desperately hope the next time we face a pandemic, we will. I agree, Liam. And I also agree that I'm it's going to it's going to take quite a while to get out of this i suppose we've got a sort of socialist state now haven't we and uh the government talks about people you know using a sense of personal responsibility but it's almost like a muscle that hasn't been exercised for 2 years it was very interesting this week i don't know if you saw that professor mark woolhouse he's a professor of infectious disease epidemiology at edinburgh and an advisor on sage we're seeing quite a lot of clearing of the throats and mild recantations actually now um, as people try to position themselves for the public inquiry. But Professor Woolhouse has written a book called The Year the World Went Mad and he said that the government decided that telling half the population that they were at extremely low risk would dilute adherence to the harsh rules it was imposing. So instead, they ramped up the threat warnings We knew that, didn't we, co-pilot? People on Planet Normal, we've known all along that the vast majority of the population is at no risk from this virus, but the nudge unit or spy bee or whichever of the behavioural psychologists is responsible, they basically decided to terrorise everyone. And I think what we're up against still now, Liam, is this mindset. So the Labour front bench or all the particular public health wallers, so they'll say, but if we discontinue the free testing, this is dreadful because people will spread Omicron. Now, I think I can tell you that the reason that co-pilot Pearson was in her bed last week for about two days is because I had, I think I had, Omicron. And compared to the Wuhan variant I had in January 2020, which really was like being rolled over by a truck, this was a glancing blow from a roller skate. It really isn't bad. But the huge issue here, Liam, is it doesn't matter how many people get Omicron. It doesn't matter how quickly it spreads because everyone is going to get it. Her Majesty the Queen has got Omicron and she's basically had a protective ring of steel around her since the pandemic began. And COVID-19, as we've been saying on Planet Normal, banging away, COVID is not uniquely bad. It's going to take its place in the repertoire of a couple of hundred respiratory viruses that come back to these shores every single winter. So I think that it's going to take a while now to push back against the forces. We've seen the charming beardy-weirdy Marxists of independent sage who responded to Boris's announcement that the plan to end testing, surveillance service and legalisation had no solid scientific basis. I mean, these people who again and again, scientists who I have to say opposed, as we know, Liam, every previous attempt to lift restrictions, issuing blood-curdling predictions 
of thousands of dead if their warnings were ignored and then having the bloody cheek to say, oh, no, those were just scenarios. Do you remember when you didn't know what an Excel spreadsheet was and, <laughs> and you hadn't plotted a graph since second year geography? I'm not going to go into my ignorance, but I am prepared to tell you because I'm such a trusting... you become a statistical warrior. A trusting person, and this is between us. Not only do I now know what nosocomial is, but we'll come to the Ukraine later. But I was watching... Um, telly with my best beloved the other day now I didn't go to a very good school as you know Halligan I didn't go to a good school at all and we had to choose between history and geography my history is not bad my geography is basically non-existent when we were watching Newsnight <laughs> on the Ukraine and they showed a map and I said to Anthony himself I said is that the Baltic and he said Alison, that is very much not Baltic. So, uh, yeah. So, but what we have learned... Only about 1,500 miles out. Only, I've literally... (laughs) Due north. (laughs) Coming back to that, I think that it shows, doesn't it, that the journalists who... You're much better at this stuff than I am, but I have forced myself to understand some of this stuff because I felt it was very, very important. And many people didn't trouble to get to grips with it. And that's why we have lost all sense of proportion. And can I just say, Liam, actually, one of the thoughts I've had watching the Ukrainian people on the TV in the last few days is that they are a society which perforce They're not Western. They're not spoilt. They haven't been able to kind of go into hysterics about COVID because life is tough and because they have a real threat, a real blood-curdling threat of invasion on their borders. And when I'm looking at them, I'm seeing people calmly going about their business, being strong, not being indulged. It's wrong to say I envy them because you can't envy a nation which is under that kind of threat. But I do feel we've lost a lot of that sense of perspective in, in our country. And I think it's to our detriment. Just as we segue from the end of COVID restrictions to Russia, Ukraine, let me just say briefly on COVID, I completely agree with you that the Woolhouse book will emerge as a very important text. I think another very important book is A State of Fear by Laura Dodsworth, who's appeared on Planet Normal. That deserves a huge readership. And I'm delighted we on our podcast and the Telegraph were able to promote that book you mentioned in your column this week we'll put the link to that in the show notes of this episode you mentioned sir john bell of oxford look what will change our mind and what will help us to respond with more rational and sane policy measures the next time there's a pandemic is the work of people like laura dosworth like sir john bell you know credible people who analyse the situation and come up with reasoned and evidence-based explanations of what we should and shouldn't have done. It's very, very important that we have those discussions during this public inquiry. And yet, of course, this is the UK. It will be massively politicised. It will be massively publicly charged. There will be huge emphasis on ghastly Downing Street drinks parties and who knew what when and who's wrong and finger pointing rather than having a look at the scientific evidence and I'm just trying to put out a preemptive clarion call let's try and not do that even you and I Alison in our amateur way though determined way as generalists okay I'm a trained statistician and you've been really determined and you've spoken to many many extremely gifted scientists over the last year or two about this. But the two of us, we haven't been overly political about this. We've tried to follow the evidence without fear or favour. And we haven't always been thanked for it, have we? And so I sincerely hope that the public inquiry, as and when it gets up and running, is conducted in that manner. And we shall see. Can I just say, Liam, obviously I was off with the COVID. Last week, um, Sajid Javid waved through the JCVI approving the vaccinations of five to 11 year old children. At the end of the pandemic, the last shot in the war is being fired. This is a totally unnecessary measure. 
totally unnecessary to be rolling out. I and mean, they've even shame, sort of, in a sort of shameful way, have admitted, oh, well, it's not compulsory. Well, no, there's no need to be doing things now unless Sajid Javid, like sort of Albert Steptoe off the back of the lorry, is just saying, roll up, roll up. I've got a few... Harold! Harold, I've got a few billion vaccinations here I need to get rid of. I mean, literally. Well, Wilfred Brambley had a very well-spoken voice in real he life. Did. You know? He did, he did. And what was... Harry um, H. Corbett. Harry H. Corbett. But what about he... the film when he married a, a stripper called Zeta? Do you remember that one? <laughs> I don't remember that one. <laughs> That's a real early 70s name for you, isn't it? Zeta. It is. You always go one better than me with your TV <laughs> knowledge. But yes, no, Harry H. Corbett, because he tried to talk. Halligan, we can't... Yay, dirty old, old man. Yay, dirty old man. <laughs> we cannot mark the last day of the COVID restrictions without a tiny bit of our wonderful George, can we? Indeed, let's have some George, our senior source within NHS England. He or she has full access to the internal data. We don't disclose George's identity, but we're confident authenticity of statistics that George gives us. That's why we report them here on Planet Normal, but we can't independently verify them because they're not published and they may never be published. So George writes, is this George's last hurrah? (laughs) Oh, no. There are just short of 9,000 COVID patients in hospital in England. That number is currently falling by about 10% week on week. So it's likely to be some months yet until hospitals are entirely free of COVID patients. But the proportion of those patients primarily being treated for COVID is now well under 50%. So there are about 4,000 odd actual COVID patients being treated for the virus by NHS England, which co-pilot is under 5% of all hospital beds. And George says there are now fewer patients being treated primarily for COVID than any time since mid-October. Let's hope we can finally start thinking about the whole damn thing being over. And Halligan, I just want to say, I don't think we could have done it without George. In the midst of hysteria and attacks and being called all the terrible things you were called if you ever asked for some proof and if you ever objected to the gloom brothers graphs and throughout we have had george to hold on like a slender handrail of good sense solid facts to hold on to that slender handrail throughout the pandemic telling us no it's quite bad this week but it's not as bad as it was three years ago we were lent that great gift of proportion and perspective and i and i should finish by saying that i know how much george has meant to planet normal listeners as well so a huge thank you to this amazing and fearless source who put his her career on the line every week to shine some light in the darkness and he she has also taken huge professional risks and shown tremendous trust in planet normal we've both met George, we've broken bread with George, we've we have. drunk um, beer and wine with George in moderation, of course. In moderation, and absolutely. We, we've had very, <laughs> very in-depth discussions about the reality of the situation, as demonstrated by the most detailed official statistics, statistics that it strikes me ministers simply just didn't get their heads around. <laughs> really an incredible public resource that either cabinet ministers didn't understand or didn't bother to try to understand or just didn't even know that it existed. But George is a public servant in the highest sense of the word. And we should thank him, her. Or should I say they, them? Was Churchill the hero of the Second World War or a racist imperialist whose actions led to the Bengal famine? Should his statue be protected or pulled down? And can we really judge the figures of the past with the attitudes of the present? My name is Stephen Edgington and if you're enjoying this podcast, you might like History Defended, a new series from The Telegraph. 
In each episode, a leading historian defends a controversial historical figure. I play devil's advocate. There are some times in wartime when incredibly difficult decisions of life and death have to be taken. Winston Churchill, Clive of India, Bomber Harris and Oliver Cromwell. Men whose actions still influence the world we live in today. Today is victory in Europe day. Search History Defended in the same place you're listening to this. Well, co-pilot, we've heard from some excellent British MPs in recent weeks. I thought it would be nice to cast the rocket's net a bit wider. Alexander Downer is one of the most significant Australian political figures of his generation. He served as opposition leader and leader of the Liberal Party from 1994 to 1995. And subsequently, he was Australia's longest serving Minister for Foreign Affairs in John Howard's government. A gregarious, larger than life character, Alexander is a huge Anglophile. From 2014 to 2018, he was Australian High Commissioner to the UK. He still lives with his family in London, where, among other roles, he's the executive chair of the International School for Government at King's College, chairman of the think tank Policy Exchange and of the terrific Royal Overseas League. Now, when he was Australian Foreign Minister co-pilot, Alexander Downer played a pivotal role in negotiating the Pacific Solution, a policy of transporting asylum seekers to detention centres on Pacific islands to process their asylum claims instead of on the Australian mainland. This policy pretty much brought illegal immigration to a complete halt, but it was hugely controversial. Last week, following a record year for asylum seekers crossing the Channel, Home Secretary Priti Patel announced that Alexander Downer would conduct a review of the UK border force and examine the agency's structure, powers, funding and priorities. It is, by any standards, a daunting challenge and one that could prove critical for Conservative support at the next general election. In a bit of a Planet Normal exclusive co-pilot, I asked Alexander Downer how he views this new role And is he prepared for some rough headlines? I'm not doing the job because of headlines. I'm doing it because the Home Secretary asked me to do it. So I just do my objective best and have a look at the details of border forces operations right across the board, not just in relation to the small boats. And when it comes to the small boats issue, I mean, I obviously have experience from Australia and how we handled it there. But I just have a look at the facts and see what I can... um, Discern. First of all, it clearly isn't government policy to encourage all these people to come across the channel. Otherwise, this easy solution would be to send a ferry and collect them and bring them across. And then they wouldn't have to take a dangerous journey on a small boat. So assuming that they don't want to do that and they want to keep them out unless they apply through official channels for asylum, how do we achieve that? So, yeah, I look forward to examining the facts. You've talked in an article you wrote for the Daily Mail about disincentivising these predominantly young males coming across. I mean, is that something that you worked on in Australia? Yes. So in the case of Australia, the issue was that there were essentially organised crime gangs, people smugglers, as we called them, who were running a racket across the Arafura Sea into Australia. And to stop this happening and to stop people making these dangerous journeys and trying to circumvent and exploit Australia's immigration laws, we had to destroy the business model of the people smugglers. I mean, they were making millions and millions of dollars a year out of smuggling people on small boats into Australia. So once we demonstrated that, of course, we will protect people's civil liberties We will honour our commitments under the Refugee Convention, but at the same time, we won't allow people to come to Australia using dangerous backdoor methods like that. And once the people smugglers realised they couldn't get people to Australia, well, that was it. The business basically closed down. It's really hard to raise the subject of immigration in the UK. Nigel Farage is one of the few to highlight the growing problem of migrants crossing the channel in increasing numbers. I think we've had the record number in the past year. 
people who are worried are immediately shouted down, accused of xenophobia and racism. Do you think that there is legitimate cause for concern in the UK? Well, in the case of the UK, as in the case of Australia, you have an immigration policy and an immigration program. In Australia, we took around 160,000 migrants a year. About two-thirds of those were essentially coming to Australia on the point system, as we used to describe it, and you have a point system here in the UK. So they're skilled migrants, and then a large percentage of the rest are family reunion migrants. And then we resettled some refugees. It's around 20,000 people, and that's it. So 160 or so thousand people can come to Australia through those three pathways, but no more. Whereas the UK doesn't have caps on the number of migrants who come to the UK. So that is one of the big differences, actually, between Australia and the UK. My role isn't to adjudicate on this question of caps, but I just draw attention to the fact that it is a big difference between Australia and the UK. As Australian Foreign Affairs Minister from 1996 to 2007, you played a key role in negotiating the so-called Pacific Solution for Australia. That was, as you described, a policy of transporting asylum seekers to Pacific Islands to process their asylum claims instead of on the Australian mainland. How difficult, Alexander, was it to secure agreement with nations like Papua New Guinea to host these offshore processing centres? Well, Alison, we negotiated with both the Nauru and the Papua New Guinea governments. And I said to the Nauru government that we'd be really grateful if they'd help us out with this issue. Obviously, we would cover all of the costs associated with it. And they were willing to accept that. But it did mean that we had to man and run the processing centre rather than they do it all. But they got some economic benefit out of it. And obviously, we had an aid program. And there's no doubt that um, the aid program did encourage them to see the benefit to Nauru of hosting the facilities. What was it that made the Australian government at that time opt for this policy of trying to push back migrants arriving by sea? Well, what else can you do in this situation? They're making dangerous journeys and some of them were being drowned on the way. The sheer danger of the journeys really did focus the mind, as you've seen in the channel recently when quite a few people were drowned. So that does tend to concentrate people's minds. And secondly, well, it's the integrity of our immigration program. You can come to Australia as a refugee and there's a pathway to do that. These people were not being persecuted in Indonesia. They were coming from Indonesia, but they weren't being persecuted in Indonesia. They weren't fleeing Indonesia. They just thought, well, Australia would be a nicer country to live in than a range of other countries. Well, fair enough, but if you want to come and live in Australia, there are legitimate pathways to follow not queue jumping by paying a people smuggler. So That seems to me to be a key point which people who oppose such measures really tend to just brush over, which is that there are legitimate people who are suffering persecution who are in a queue to come to our country for safety. And then we have these people who are fleeing France, which, as we know, Alexander, is perhaps not the most terrifying place, although Monsieur Macron is quite alarming, but I think it's not... You used to be a great fan of President Macron. (laughs) I I listen to your programme week (laughs) after week, your podcast. We've had a divorce. (laughs) As with so many world leaders like Jacinda Ardern, he seems to have lost the plot. He's certainly not in the same league as Jacinda Ardern, whatever you think of President Macron. Where would we put the blessed Jacinda in terms of pottiness? Justin Trudeau comes to mind. I think they're very much in the same pod. Yes, they are. What was practically required to implement the Pacific Solution? We're already hearing rumblings from the border force trade unions over here. How many Navy vessels were involved for Australia to intercept these boats? And what did it take to get the people to these islands? For processing. We used the Navy initially and we used subsequently border force vessels. But obviously we don't need so many of them now because this trade has pretty much stopped. That's what I was going to say to you. How effective was the Pacific Solution policy in stopping illegal migrants coming into Australia? It's been incredibly effective. 
It really has been effective. I mean, I wouldn't say no illegal migrants ever come to Australia. They do. And, of course, there are other ways they can get into Australia. But, no, it's been incredibly effective. And the public are pleased about that because the public think, well, we're maintaining the integrity of our immigration system. It's not being subjected to the whims of people smugglers or the profits of people smugglers and organised crime gangs. The government decides who comes to Australia and the circumstances in which they come, to use a phrase. And the public are happy with immigration as long as you know who's coming to the country and the immigration is rational and controlled. Uncontrolled immigration has always been very unpopular in Australia. I was going to say, Alexander, the Pacific Solution was a huge vote winner ahead of the 2001 election in Australia Do you think a similar policy could be equally popular in the UK? Well, I'm doing this review, so I've got to be very careful dealing with a question like that. Look, in the case of Australia, I'm not sure because it demonstrated the government was really focused on national security and protecting our borders. But there was huge opposition as well. There wasn't just support. There was very vocal opposition They tended not, by the way, as apparently is the case in the UK, to be opposition from trade unions because trade unions represent typically blue-collar workers and a lot of blue-collar workers were very much in support of this policy. It's much more a proportion of the legal profession, civil servants, people like that, the bourgeois elites, if you like, amongst whom were very opposed to this policy. But I think overall, Australians were happy enough to make sure we maintain the integrity of our immigration system. When your appointment was announced last week, there were howls of protest from places like The Guardian saying giving you that role was deeply concerning. There was a lot of criticism, as you just alluded to, of Australian border policy being too harsh. Would you still say that it saved lives and reduced people smuggling and overall was a good It destroyed the people smugglers' business model. It saved a large number of lives because people were making perilous journeys. Today is a great cause for celebration, Alexandra, on Planet Normal. Boris Johnson is ending all COVID restrictions in the UK from today, Thursday the 24th. Do you think it's enough to save his premiership and should Australia follow suit? Will they? Australia has an election coming up, so the government's obviously going to be fairly cautious about how it handles this issue politically and also to add confusion in the case of Australia, the state governments um, have their own policies in dealing with COVID and they have been incredibly restrictive. I mean, Melbourne had the largest number of days locked down of any city in the world. So Australia is gradually liberalising now, yes, step by step, but not to the extent that Boris Johnson is doing in the UK. Yes, in answer to your question, it will be a huge help for Boris Johnson in terms of his broader survival strategy. I'm sure he's doing it because his instincts have always been more liberal on this issue than the instincts of governments in Australia. I think initially in the UK, and I know this from people I've spoken to within the government, the instinct of Boris Johnson and the Cabinet Office and Number 10 was to just protect the vulnerable and let people make their own individual decisions about what they did. This idea of introducing a whole raft of laws, mandatory wearing of masks, all sorts of things like that, that was forced on the government by the pressure of the uh, medical profession. The legendary sage. Not so sage as it turned out. This was far from the no worries, easygoing image of Australia that British people love so much. Were you personally surprised by the authoritarian stance taken? I was absolutely astonished, honestly. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe Australians could be reduced to such a state of fear over COVID. Really, I just never thought it would happen. I always thought of we Australians as being strong and robust people, you know, robust to a fault, really. I'm often criticised for being too robust. In fact, you've been talking about our policy on illegal migrants and how robust we were on that. It's typically Australian robustness. 
So all the wrong questions were being asked in Australia and all the wrong policies were being pursued. There have been large protests against COVID restrictions and vaccine mandates in Australia in recent weeks. People have descended on Canberra from all over the country, similar, in fact, to the truck drivers' freedom protests we've seen in Ottawa. Do you think Australians are finally starting to wake up to the damage caused by the draconian rules? Uh, No, I don't, actually. I think those people who are protesting are a very small minority. I thought most people would have stood up for freedom, but apparently only a few. But no, I mean, these draconian policies have been very popular in Australia. Make no mistake about that. Can we talk about Australia-UK relations? There's always been this wonderful, occasionally testy, generally good-humoured historic alliance between our two nations. How much more important do you think that that relationship is in the current geopolitical climate? I think it's become much more important. I mean, partly because the UK, since Brexit, has tilted its um, foreign and security policy towards the Indo-Pacific, and Australia is the most natural of partners for the UK in the Indo-Pacific for obvious historical and cultural reasons. But also it is worth making this point in the context of Brexit that prior to Brexit, The major institutions in the UK of foreign policy, not least the Foreign Office, showed scant interest in Australia. But there was a historic trade agreement signed with Australia last year, which is our first foreign trade agreement from scratch since Brexit. To what degree has Brexit enabled the UK to form stronger relationships with countries like Australia? Well, a a trade agreement was out of the question, of course, because that had to be done by the European Union and We've been negotiating trade agreements for a very, very long time with the European Union, and it's just very hard to make agreement of that kind with them. Their instincts are rather protectionist. So for a free trading country like the UK, and with such historic ties with Australia, it's turned out to be quite easy to negotiate a free trade agreement. It's possible because of Brexit. It could never have happened without Brexit. The AUKUS pact between UK, Australia and the US was announced last year, ruffling Monsieur Macron's amour propre, poor thing. How significant is this new partnership on the world stage? Well, ultimately, Australia, the UK and the US are five eyes countries. So we have for a very long time shared intelligence secrets with each other and we share personnel and operations and so on. And this is extending that concept to technology, not just nuclear-powered submarines, but in terms of artificial intelligence, cyber technology, and so on. This is how wars will be fought in the years ahead. The fact that the three of our countries are collaborating will be very significant. We're natural partners, not just because we all speak English, but the reason we speak English is because of our common heritage. And out of that common heritage comes a level of trust that I guess we don't have with other countries. Under Jacinda Ardern, to whom we just fondly referred, do you think New Zealand will remain part of the Five Eyes security sharing group under her leadership? Well, I mean, I don't know how long her leadership will last. Her popularity seems to be on the decline now. But New Zealand has not really been a great partner for Australia under Jacinda Ardern, we've obviously in Australia been having a very tough time with China. And just at the time, China imposed a whole series of economic sanctions on Australia because they were outraged that the Australian government had called for an international investigation into the outbreak of COVID. Just at that time, when the Chinese imposed a whole lot of sanctions on Australia, the Jacinda Ardern government signed off on an amended and expanded free trade agreement with China. So it wasn't exactly a friendly act. And then a little later, the foreign minister of New Zealand said that they wouldn't participate in a Five Eyes statement criticising China. So they haven't been uh, great to deal with for Australia. Australia and New Zealand, in a political sense, have drifted apart quite substantially over the last few years. I think it's sad. Coming back to our common heritage, there have been concerns this week, obviously, about the Queen's health. She has COVID, although still, thank goodness, going about light duties. What would the reaction be in Australia, Alexander, towards Prince Charles when he takes over? 
would Australians accept Camilla as queen? And we know there's long been a Republican movement in Australia. In 1999, there was a referendum on whether to replace the queen as head of state. And that was a pretty close result with only 55% voting no overall. I know you personally campaigned against the Republic ahead of that. Do you still feel the same way now? And what value, if any, does the British monarchy add to Australia? Yeah, I mean, I did vote for the continuation of the monarchy in Australia in 1999. And I told the Queen myself that I am one of the very few people in the world, ma'am, I said, who has voted (laughs) for you. Did she laugh? She did. She didn't say anything, of course, but she just laughed. But I think this is much more an issue of the stability of the Australian constitution than the personalities of the royal family. I mean, to take the monarchy out of the Australian constitution involves quite a lot of rewriting of the constitution. And, you know, you put in a president and why would we want a constitutional upheaval in our country? What would be the benefit of that? I mean, you'd have an Australian as the head of state. In reality, the governor general is the head of state of Australia and he is Australian. So, I mean, the benefits would just be so slight. And people don't see Australia as a country which is a colony of the UK. They see Australia as a a strong and independent country. Alexander Dana, thank you so much for bringing your wit and wisdom to the denizens of Planet Normal. Thank you. Thank you for Planet Normal, which gives me great enjoyment every single week. Wow, we got the endorsement from Down Under. We did, didn't we? He's just a a great raconteur as well, Liam. I was talking to him about serious matters, but we should just have him on sometime just to sort of crack on, really, because he's tremendously entertaining and I hope that came across knowledgeable person. Although, obviously, he was unable to comment on this review of the border force that he's doing for the UK. I don't know if you saw, Liam, but I think there are a couple of clues in what he said about the Australian experience, which may point us towards what he'll come back with for the Home Secretary. He was talking about adjudicating on a question of caps to people coming here, how many people should be allowed to come and what nature of person. And he also talked about the aid programmes, inverted commas, to the islands and countries that were persuaded to process the Australian migrants. So I wouldn't be at all surprised to see those topics um, cropping up in his report. What did you think? Well, a couple of things uh, jumped out at me. The first is that Alexander Downer, who is a huge political insider here in the UK, I mean, he's got a massive affinity for for Britain. He went to school Mm. in Britain. He spent time at Radley College, and he really does know people at the top of politics, Mm. right across the political spectrum, by the way. He's by no means mostly or even mainly a conservative party animal, I would say. But he's basically told us in that interview, Alison, that Boris Johnson initially supported what we would describe as the Great Barrington Declaration, targeted shielding. That is really, really important. And if that is true... The Prime Minister needs to talk about that and he needs to talk about it at the public inquiry. I go back to that public inquiry. So that was very interesting to me. The other thing that jumped out is your sort of mini scoop that he's doing this review and talking to him about the scope of the review rather than the contents of the review, which he obviously can't disclose at this point. But I do think this is an issue that Boris Johnson needs to address. I do think it concerns lots of people not on a basis of race but on a basis of fairness the people i have most discussions with about the small boats crisis are british asians Mm. who have jumped through all the hoops and who have gone through all the rigmarole of legally migrating here and setting themselves up and they don't like the fact that people are getting a free pass and undermining the general idea of immigration The story of immigration in this country has not always been straightforward. I speak as an Irish person, but in the round, the vast majority of British people would agree that this country, the wealth, our culture is built on waves of immigration, Irish, Jewish, Huguenot, Asian, Caribbean. It makes Britain what it is and something I'm particularly very proud of and I know you are too but it has to be done properly and there has to be a sense of fairness about it 
the numbers are pretty astonishing. In 2021, 20,400 people who crossed the channel in small boats were picked up and processed by the authorities. They're the ones we know about. That was three times higher than in 2020. And in January 2022, again, the numbers were six times higher than in January 2021. So this is getting into the tens of thousands each year. It's a huge amount of money, but above all, it's a huge amount of damage to the whole concept of immigration, which is a very important and, in my view, laudable concept, something that Britain should be proud of. I looked it up, co-pilot, and the UK hotel bill for 37,000 migrants who are awaiting processing is £4.7 million every day, every day. The Home Office contract with some of these people is over 10 years and it's four billion pounds think of how much money could go into schools and hospitals from putting up these people many of them as you say queue jumping there are lots of people in syria and turkey in these vast refugee camps christians from the middle east desperate to come here but they are waiting their turn and i think alexander downer's report i think this is going to be a huge issue a YouGov poll in August 2021 said that despite the pandemic, immigration was Conservative voters' number one concern. Now, health tops the concern for all voters, but among Conservative voters, 53% saw immigration as the top issue facing the country and 52% were more concerned about the economy. So it is going to be extremely Pivotal, I think. And I think we'll hopefully persuade Alexander to come back to Planet Normal. I'm sure you gathered he's he's a huge fan of the rocket of right thinking and, and a lovely person to have aboard. And he also picked up your astonishing U-turn when it comes to your former boyfriend, <laughs> Emmanuel Macron. You, you, you always fall for it, don't you? A bit of smoothie pants, some nice socks, <laughs> some aftershave you can't even smell. <laughs> I'm too young for him. Look at the age of that woman he's with. Now onto our listener emails. An absolutely bumper crop this week. Please do keep them coming. We absolutely love hearing from Planet Normal listeners. I'm going to start off with quite a hard one, Liam. Listeners will remember that a couple of weeks ago we heard from Annette, whose 96-year-old father had been admitted to the Norfolk and Norwich Hospital and Annette was unable to go and visit her dad, Owen, because she was told that either she would have to wait 10 days to see him or she would only be able to see him when he was end-of-life care and Annette had objected that at 96 years old her father might reasonably expect to be treated as end-of-life care but we all know that the nonsensical and cruel rules to which too many people have been subject. Anyway, this is an update from Annette. Planet Normal, I thought I'd let you know that my lovely dad, Owen, deteriorated overnight and passed away this morning at 8.30am. I was with him, it was peaceful, and he knew that he was loved. Had I rolled over and let the hospital dictate their no-visit-for-the-first-10-days policy to me, I would not have been able to see him until this afternoon, when it would have been too late. Instead, I have spent time with my dad every day since Thursday, and I was there when he was quite engaged and able to interact with me on Friday. I'm so grateful for that, and I want to say thank you again to Planet Normal and to George, your NHS source, for your advice and help in highlighting this issue. How many have lost precious time with their loved ones due to this inhumane policy? Warmest wishes, Annette. Well, huge condolences from Liam and I and Planet Normal, Annette. And we should put this in the show notes, Liam. Um, Annette's dad, Owen, had a wonderful blog into later life about growing up and farming in Norfolk. Absolutely wonderful. He was clearly a lovely man. So we'll try and put that in the show notes. Best wishes, Annette, from all of us at Planet Normal to you and your family and to the memory of your dad. This is from John. To the co-pilots, care of the good ship Enlightenment, Planet Normal, (laughs) universe of common sense. Hooray! I've listened to all your episodes and remain in awe at the quality of entertainment, being irreverent, empathetic, critical and understanding, all in one programme. 
Alison makes me indignant at such blatant lies. Then Liam quotes figures while dropping in one or two bombshells that have us laughing out loud. (laughs) Then there are the excruciating stories of those who've endured the utmost privations, often due to the crass decisions made by both elected politicians and unelected officials and experts. There's no other programme that competes. Thankfully, I don't have a personal devastating story to tell, but I would like to make a suggestion, writes John. After having listened to Lord Frost on your podcast and reading Liam's interview article with him in The Telegraph. Give Boris's old job back, writing irreverent and stimulating articles for The Telegraph. Place Lord Frost in the hot seat to knuckle down to the extremely tiresome and rarely appreciated task of running the country efficiently and affordably, something our current PM is unable to achieve. This would be a win-win in my very humble opinion. Keep up the good work and ignore the naysayers. And Alison, I hope you're better. Very best wishes, John. What a lovely email, John. And we can say that Lord Frost is going to become a Daily Telegraph regular columnist. And we know of a certain columnist who left his berth to move on to number 10. So there's hopes that your prediction may come true. This is from Paula. I'm currently stuck at home due to positive tests, our first brush with the virus and the whole of the pandemic. My sons have both missed a week of school and then half term. I have a runny nose. My sons had virtually no symptoms at all. Eldest a slight headache day one, youngest zero. I'm really quite angry they've missed school and some days out during their break for this utterly unremarkable virus. I'd have taken them out to the park if I didn't think our local village zealots might shop me. A mentality I hope that goes away once the legal isolation ends. As for me, after struggling mentally through the lockdowns and homeschooling, it's felt like a depressing reminder of those dark days and why they should never return. As Alison says, we should celebrate today as all restrictions are lifted. I, for one, feel very pleased that COVID swept through our house with no great fuss and now we can enjoy some natural immunity as we head into the spring months. Good riddance to this whole debacle. And you'll love this, Liam. This is from Alan. It's worth remembering that the government body in revolutionary France, which jailed 300,000 enemies of the state and sent 17,000 of them to the guillotine, was called the Committee of Public Safety. (laughs) (laughs) Keep safe, Halligan. Keep safe. Watch out. Final one from me. This is from Adrian. Dear Alison and Liam, I'm terrified by the prospect of the end of the pandemic. Not the end of the panic, the overreaction, the generationally ruinous measures, the wrecking of millions of kids' education, the mushrooming of cancer rates and the carpet bombing of our economy, all over a relatively minor public health event. No, says Adrian, I'm terrified that the ending of the madness will precipitate the end of planet normal. No! brilliant examination (laughs) and rational discussion of the global socio-economic landscape. (laughs) You guys just have to keep going with Planet Normal. It's not like the pandemic is the only thing going on in the world. Yours with heartfelt admiration and thanks, Adrian. We ain't going nowhere. Get rid of Planet Normal, Halligan. What you know? <laughs> what would what would be what would we be doing? The universe with would stop spinning. <laughs> I know you've got your stellar broadcasting career, but it's the only time I get out in the week is getting in the rocket. I tell you. Um, anyway, Adrian, never fear. We we do plan to outlast the pandemic and there may even... Do you want to break the top secret news, Halligan? Indeed. This is the 89th episode of Planet Normal. And in the middle of May, it's going to be the 100th episode of Planet Normal. And we are thinking of mm. having a Planet Normal event for listeners Yay. to come to. <laughs> do you like the idea? Would you be interested? Email us, planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk and let us know your thoughts. If we had an in-person Planet Normal event, I'll be there. Alison might find time for it in her busy schedule. (laughs) So there's a gin and tonic, I'll go anywhere. You know me. Actually, it'd be lovely to meet all the lovely people who've listened and written in. I think it would be quite the emotional and fun event. It will be a gathering of the Planet Normal family. And that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views. Email of the week, Alison, it's your turn. Well, I think John said such flattering things about us and we do like to be praised. So, John, a rare as rocking horse poo Planet Normal mug will be on its way to you if you send us your address, please. 
If you enjoy Planet Normal, and why not? Do leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Please do. It really helps others to find us so the Planet Normal family can grow. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal, when the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Louisa Wells, Giles Gear, Elliot Lampett, and our editor, Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.